Matthew 2, 1 through 18. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, O you, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he had sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Gosh, this never happens. Kind of bad timing. You know, we're here, but I love a gift. This is pretty awesome. See what this is. Oh, my goodness. Woo! Wow, we wrapped this well. Oh. Oh, wow, a fruitcake. Oh. Fruitcake. Thank you. What do you do with an unwanted Christmas gift? Give it to Diane. What do you do with an, with an unexpected and utterly unwanted Christmas gift? I know some people would want the fruitcake. If you're lucky, it comes with a receipt. 
so you can quietly return it. Maybe you can safely re-gift it to someone who's outside of an, another sphere of your life. Maybe it just ends up in a forgotten corner of the closet, in this case, that would last forever, probably. Or maybe if the gift is really, really undesirable, it ends up tucked into one of the yellow bags on the way to the transfer station next dump day. What do you do with an unwanted Christmas gift? And friends, that is what we are going to spend the next four Sundays of Advent discussing. And specifically, we're going to talk about Jesus, the unwanted Christmas gift. Now, some of you might have been with me up until there, and you're going, whoa, Adam, you had me until you said Jesus is an unwanted Christmas gift. Jesus is not fruitcake. Jesus is not just some unwanted Christmas gift. In fact, Jesus is the gift. He's the reason for the season. So how could you say that Jesus is an unwanted Christmas gift? Now, friends, in some general sense, every one of us has to acknowledge that Jesus is a gift and He's the reason for the season. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are things about Jesus that we would rather exchange. There are things about Jesus that we would rather stash in a closet and not talk about. There are things that if we could about Jesus that we would return to sender. Jesus might truly be a gift and the reason for the season, but in many ways he's an unwanted Christmas gift. In this Advent, we're going to explore why. Why that is and how that is. And so this, the first Sunday of Advent, we're going to consider Jesus the unwanted Christmas gift. And friends, he's an unwanted Christmas gift because what we don't actually want at Christmas is a king. We don't actually want a king. Now, on our approved Christmas list, champion. We would love a champion who's going to come and fight against our enemies. A hero, someone who's going to come and save us from our troubles. That's great. Maybe even a leader, someone who'll give us an inspiring example to aspire to. But the unwanted gift of Christmas is that Jesus is a king who's come to rule over us. That's why we sang this morning, this, this is Christ the King. And so like the wise men were instructed by the song, so bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come peasant and come king to own him. Because the King of Kings salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone Him. So friends, whether you're a peasant or whether you yourself are a king, a new king has come to town. The King of all kings has come to take the throne of our world and the throne of our hearts. And friends, in the story that Diane read for us today, that makes Herod nervous. But the truth is it makes all of us nervous. Because a king is not what any of us really want. A king is an unwanted Christmas gift. And the account that Diane read for us is the account of the Magi. And as we've discussed in Christmas's past, the Magi might be the most misunderstood characters in the traditional Christmas story. Much of what we believe about the Magi is speculation, mythology, or from a Hallmark greeting card. As example, at CSBC, we don't regularly sing the Christmas carol, We Three Kings, because it's wrong. First, the Bible doesn't say there were three travelers. We sang, bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. So the Bible tells us there were three gifts, but it doesn't tell us how many travelers brought those gifts. 
So the word magi is plural, so we know that there were at least two, but we have no idea how many actually traveled to see Jesus. And secondly, and most pertinent to today's discussion, is that whoever these travelers were, they were not themselves kings. But what they were was king-makers. These were not kings. These were king-makers. The Bible calls them magi. It's the plural of the Greek magos. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we actually find this word used. And it's used, friends, in the book of Daniel, which we just finished studying together. In the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 2, it tells us King Nebuchadnezzar summoned all of his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to interpret his dream for him. And those who showed up in Jerusalem looking for the newborn king, these magi, they were wise men Chaldeans from the east, from Babylon. And a couple of months ago, when we were all studying Daniel chapter 2, I made that observation. I said that the wise men who showed up at Jesus' birth were likely somehow, through history, related as far as passing on of wisdom and tradition all the way back to Daniel and Babylon. Where did they learn that a new king was going to come from the Jews except from Daniel the Jew, who was over the Chaldeans and the wise men of his time? And I mentioned that during our series on Daniel. And one of our summer attenders, Denny Harris, he recommended to me a sermon by Dr. John MacArthur all about the Magi. And I listened to the sermon, and it's amazing to listen to because Dr. MacArthur goes through in great detail and he traces the history. What does history reveal about these wise men, about the Chaldeans that were in Babylon and the wise men that showed up in Jerusalem and actually traces them and we find that these people or such people were in the halls of power of administration after administration in country after country raising up monarch after monarch. As such, MacArthur's conclusion is that these men were king makers and that no one ruled apart from them. They were the ones behind the scene who helped cause the rising and the falling of kings. So think about it. When King Herod, in his day, hears that these magi, who are likely in that culture known to be kingmakers, shows up and starts asking, hey, where's the new king been born? Of course Herod would be anxious. Of course he would panic. If the kingmakers show up in town asking about a new king, you're going to be troubled. And in verse 3 it says, Herod was troubled. The Greek word literally means he was shaking. Herod doesn't want the gift of a new king at Christmas. Herod doesn't want another king that's going to come and take the throne. And that's made abundantly clear by the lengths to which Herod goes to stop a new king coming. We also learn in this account that one of the biggest errors that we make is putting these wise men, these magi, in our Christmas stable scenes. You might have noticed as Diane read for us verse 11, it says that the Magi visited a child and not a baby. And plus it says they visited him in a house and not in a stable. Friends, the Magi visited as much as two years after the birth of Jesus, which is confirmed by Herod's action in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. 
It says, Then Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. Herod ordered the slaughter not of newborn infants, but of all male children two years and under, according to what he'd learned from these magi. And as such, the magi, the wise men, do not belong in our Christmas scene. And so you'll actually notice we have a Christmas angel who moved the magi over to the organ out of our Christmas scene. So you can be aware of them. They're on their way, but they're not there. So the Magi are on their way. And Bethlehem, friends, was a small town. And in the surrounding area, it was sparsely populated. So scholars estimate that the number of male children who were slaughtered by Herod was somewhere between 12 and 20 children. A significant number of families in this small community to fall victim to Herod. And friends, why? Because Herod did not want another king. Herod knew that a new king would threaten his own authority and his autonomy, and he would have to submit to that king. Herod went to great lengths to avoid the king and to return to sender this unwanted Christmas gift. And friends, every generation of humanity has done the same thing since. We will go to violent ends to protect our self-autonomy, to protect our personal authority and freedom, no matter what life must suffer. We don't want a king. And that's especially true in regards to Jesus. You know, we're okay with Jesus as a champion to fight for us, a hero to save us from our troubles, maybe even a leader to inspire us. But we don't want a king. We want a Jesus who submits to us, not to whom we have to submit. We want a Jesus who conforms to us not to whom we must conform. We want a Jesus who pleases us, not whom we must please. We don't want a king. We want to be kings and queens of our little petty kingdoms. And just like in the Garden of Eden with the fruit, we want to decide what's right and what's wrong. We don't want to submit to anyone but ourselves and what we want. We want to please none but me. And so just like Herod, humanity will go to great and violent lengths to maintain their autonomy by rejecting the unwanted gift of a new king. Now, if you've been following along with us as we've read through the New Testament this year, last week was week 47 of 2022, but in our reading we're in, verse, in week 46 because we're a week behind. We started a week late. But if you are following along, we read in the Gospel of John chapters 16 through 20, and in John 19, we read of Jesus' trial and his crucifixion. And so just this last week, we read a startling exchange between the governor of Jerusalem, Pilate, and the people in John 19. John 19, verses 45 through 15, this is what happened. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, 
we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Friends, people violently reject Jesus and almost ridiculously here. It's startling because in this time, Israel was oppressed by Rome and by Caesar. And the Jewish people hated Rome because Rome had subjugated them. And they hated Caesar. They were praying for a Messiah to overthrow Caesar and overthrow Rome. And yet here we find the Jewish people siding with the oppressor, siding with Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Friends, why would the so-called oppressive kings of this world be preferable to Jesus Christ as king? You know, the oppressive kings and powers of this world promise freedom as long as you submit to them. And many hope that by submitting to the oppressive kings, powers, and philosophies of this world, maybe you'll curry some favor with them. Maybe you can avoid persecution. Maybe you can maintain your position. Maybe you can stay relevant. Maybe you'll receive some scraps from their table. Many reject the rule of Christ and claim Caesar as king in hopes of gaining something from the powers and the kings of this world. It only costs you your soul. But friends, if you claim Christ as king, if you claim as the king, not only are you going to lose your personal autonomy because you have to claim him as king and submit to him, but if you claim Christ as king, you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of all the kings and powers of this world because you're going to stand on the wrong side of popular opinion the wrong side of theology, the wrong side of sexuality, the wrong side of morality, the wrong side of reality, you will, in the opinion of this world, stand on the wrong side of history. And so like the Jewish people of Jesus' day, it's easier to even embrace an oppressive king like Caesar in a vain attempt to gain favor with him than to confess Jesus as Lord and King. What shall I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify Him. Jesus may be the gift that the world was given that first Christmas, but friends, He's an unwanted gift. We just don't want a King who will rule over us. We don't want a King that's going to put us so far out of step with the powers and culture of this world. Friends, we believe that we will be happiest if we remain the kings and the queens of our own lives. We believe that contentment and peace will be found only if we get to call all the shots. Only if we get to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. Only if we get to define reality and truth. Only if we get to do what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. So we'll accept the gift of Jesus if He's only a champion, or a hero, or an example, or maybe a teacher. But a king? A king to rule over us? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Friends, Jesus came and He was well aware that His kingship would be an unwanted Christmas gift. He knew that many of His generation and many of our generation and many of all generations would violently reject that gift. In fact, in our Bible reading last week, we also read in John's Gospel of the Triumphal Entry when Jesus made His way into Jerusalem the final time. He was greeted then with much fanfare. 
And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on His way to die, to offer Himself as a gift for us all, He knows that the religious leaders and that many are going to reject His gift. They're going to reject His kingship. And how does Jesus respond? In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 19, it records that as He rode into Jerusalem, chapter 19, verses 41 and 42, and when He drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that will make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Friends, Jesus enters the city knowing that His royal claims will be rejected. And Jesus declares that by rejecting Him, they're ultimately rejecting peace. Friends, there is no other way for us to have true peace than to accept and submit to Christ as King. You won't find peace being the King or the Queen of your own life. I mean, you've been trying it for years, and how's it working out for you so far? Albert Einstein is reported to have said, the thinking that got us into this mess is not the same thinking that will get us out of it. And friends, if your self-rule has resulted in what you are at, where you are now, if your self-rule has not yet led you to peace, then what makes you think that being true to yourself or trying harder is going to make a difference? And church, you will not find peace by compromising with and submitting to the kings of this world. Friends, they promise us peace and acceptance, but their promises are empty. Because the demands are ever increasing, the goalposts are always moving, the love is conditional, and there is no grace, past or present, for failures and cancellations always around the corner. The kings of this world are not only powerless to bring you lasting peace, but despite their promises, they have no intention of bringing peace. They simply want to secure their own power. So friends, we see in this passage that Jesus weeps over us. He weeps at all who will reject Him as King. Because for them, He says, peace remains hidden, elusive, and impossible. Friends, peace is only found it's only found through the gifts that God gave that first Christmas. This, this is Christ the King. So let loving hearts enthrone Him as King. And friends, if you're here today and you're trying to find peace by being your own King, then this Christmas you are invited to receive the gift of Christ the King. You no longer need to struggle and strive. You don't need to try to grasp and control. If your self-rule has gotten you here, it's not going to get you out of here. Jesus is a good King who has come to save you from the tyranny of your own self-rule. And church, what are you doing to learn of the will of our good King? What are you doing to grow in obedience to Him? What are you doing to advance His kingdom and His reign? Where and how do you need to submit your heart to Jesus and enthrone Him in your heart as King this season? And friends, if you're trying to find peace by compromising with or submitting to the kings and petty powers of this world, this Christmas you're invited to receive the gift of Christ the King. Friends, unlike the fickle kings and powers of this world, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unlike the so-called gods of this day 
who claim to be on the right side of history, we know that our God is the Ancient of Days. Church, Jesus is the good King who came to give us what the so-called gods and kings of this world can never give us. Peace. Peace. Jesus is the good King who's come to save us from tyranny. The tyranny of our own self-rule. The tyranny of other oppressive kings. Jesus is the gift of Christmas. And even though He might seem an unwanted gift, friends, God does not always give us what we want. But God in His goodness gives us exactly what we need. And the only question for us this Advent season is, what will you do with the gift that God has given? Let's pray. Father, we confess that our rebellious hearts don't want a king. We don't want to be ruled. We don't want to submit our will to anyone else. So come humble our hearts. Come humble our hearts that we might confess Christ as not just champion, not just Savior, not just teacher, but that our hearts might confess and enthrone Jesus Christ as King. Humble us before Him. In Jesus' name. Amen.